What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There might not be a briefing by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine today, but there's always This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, and I'm here with my colleague, Laura Johnston. Just the two of us today. How are you, Laura? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. We were supposed to have a guest this morning. The technical difficulties prevented us from doing that. So it's just me and Laura for the regular questions of the day. We will aim to have the guest back on Friday. You'll have to wait till then to see who I am talking about. Let's get started. How much money is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine cutting from education because of the coronavirus? This is a big deal. There's a huge hole in the Ohio budget after having a surplus just two months ago. And Mike DeWine says he must balance the budget and he won't tap the rainy day fund. So, Laura Johnston, how is he going about doing this? So he's got to cut nearly $800 million in spending, and he's only got a few buckets to do it from. So $300 million from that is going to come out of K-12 public school funding, which is a huge cut. We're talking $210 million from Medicaid and $110 million from college and university funding. When they had the briefing yesterday, they pulled up this pie chart that basically shows where all the state money goes, and most of it goes out of the state capital to local budgets, to things like schools, prisons. They are not going to be cutting prisons. So that that leaves very little. They're also going to cut about $100 million out of state budget itself. Yeah. And I mean, and he pointed out they were they were $200 million roughly to the good at the end of February, and now they are $777 million in the red, almost a billion-dollar turnaround. Lieutenant Governor John Houston said he's never seen anything like that. But the schools have been hammered by the coronavirus. It's, they've been trying to do the education at home. That's required a lot of materials to be spread around. There's the, the broadband divide that, where they've tried to get devices to kids and districts where the kids don't have those things. Taking the money from schools is a pretty big deal. And it didn't sound like he was prescribing where they're going to cut. It's just they're sending less money to the schools and the schools are going to have to figure it out. Right. And and this is what, you know, the school districts will be having to deal with. And we don't know what's coming in the future. I mean, this is just for the end of the year, for the, the end of the state budget year, two more months. So there is rainy day possibilities for the next two year budget cycle, but I can't see them just emptying it because we don't know how long this recession is going to last and what's coming next. And I think somebody made a good point at the briefing yesterday that a lot of of tax increases for local governments failed in the recent election in April. And so are these districts going to have to go hat in hand to the taxpayers and say, look, we, we need money. And are we looking at a lot of tax increases on the ballot in November? Or maybe, and we keep talking about this, maybe this is when more school districts say, all right, we're going to have to do something drastic. Maybe we merge. 
who knows? Yeah, but you know, the, the, the sad thing here is you can lay this at the doorstep of former Governor John Kasich. John Kasich savaged local school districts and local municipal governments by taking the money away from the local government fund to build the rainy day fund and give people an income tax cut. So that rainy day fund was built on the backs of school districts that all ended up many going to voters saying, look, the state has jacked us. We need more money. So people raise their taxes to the highest levels they've ever been. We saw municipalities raising Mm -hmm. income taxes. It's unthinkable. Cleveland did it. Cleveland Heights did it. A bunch of places did it. So now, now when there's a crisis, they've already tapped their residents for the money. The rainy day fund is sitting there built on the backs of the school districts and DeWine's not using it to help them out. That just doesn't make sense to me. But it doesn't mean he's not going to use it in the future. Yeah, I, but but this is going to, this will hurt the school districts. Yes. We're calling around to find out what they're going to do once they find out how much they're losing. Look, I get it. The governor's being responsible. It's just like when you have your home budget, if you lose income, you cut back on what you spend. Um, it, it's just unfortunate that this comes so closely after John Kasich really stuck it to the school districts to begin with. I know. Anyway. But I love that we are always like, oh, good for John Kasich for building up that rainy day fund. But that's where it came from, folks. Well, and the income tax cut that that uh, that he felt so strongly about that I don't know how much people really felt it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest on what school might look like when it opens in the fall in spite of the coronavirus? We've been trying to get at this for a while, and there's clearly a lot of interest in it. Every time we publish a story that asks this question, it rockets to the top of our, our charts. Uh, we got an idea yesterday, Laura Johnston, on exactly how that might happen. It is not final at all, but this one possibility is that kids could go to school two days a week. So there'd be kind of two groups, and one group would go two days, and then so probably Monday, Tuesday, then there'd be a, a maybe a cleaning day on Wednesday, and then another group Thursday, Friday, and in between, the students would be doing online learning. That's interesting because it it sounds like it doesn't require extra teachers. We talked on a previous podcast that in the town I grew up in in New Jersey, they had too many kids for the high school. They were building a second high school. So half the kids went in the morning, half the kids went in the afternoon. You know, it was like a 6 a.m. to noon and noon to noon to six or something like that. But they had two sets of teachers because it was two complete sets of students. This is this would take advantage of existing staff to do it, right? I, I think so. I there's absolutely no details on this, and this is just one possibility, which school districts stress to us that there is nothing final here. But maybe the teachers could partner. Maybe one would be a distance learning teacher and one would be an in-person teacher, but you'd be teaching the same number of kids. It's just how they would be learning would be different and they would come at the school. So you'd only have half the kids total. So you could spread them out a little bit more. I started thinking about desks. Like would they, would you be sharing desks and spreading those out? Or we just have empty desks in the classroom. I mean, there are a lot of logistics here. Well, you could, if you only have half the kids in the classroom, those half would use half the desks and then the other kids would come in and use the other desks and avoid the transfer. Right. Doing it in the classroom with fewer kids that, that you can envision what you can't. And I think they talked about this yesterday is the crowded hallways during the changing of classes, buses with the kids in the buses, 
they're you know in the lunch rooms if they keep those open they're 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 difficult it's just like the sports stadiums you could space people out in the seats but you cannot space them out at the entrances and the concessions so so it doesn't work and there's a new study out this morning that points out that when you put the school kids together it really ramps up the rate of transmission i mean it makes the study kind of makes it clear that closing the schools was one of the smartest things DeWine did to slow the the progress of this thing. So it's not clear that this plan, that the tentative plan has legs yet. No. And, you know, there's always the question about childcare. We already got an email from a reader saying, what am I supposed to do with my kids the other three days a week? So it, it does raise a lot of questions. It feels like they're thinking, though, and they want these kids to be in a classroom because they realize the online learning is not a substitute from learning from a teacher. I mean, I got an email from my kid's teacher yesterday that's like, here's all the things he didn't turn in correctly. And so you can be a, as as good of a parent as you think you, you're trying to be, but your kid is still on a computer turning in work themselves. And, and that teacher is not hovering over them saying, oh no, you forgot to do number six, you know? So it, but but if But if the kid was with the teacher a couple of days a week, and and the setup was to to prepare the kid to go home and do some home learning with some online aids. That sounds like it's more regimented than what we've had, where it's you know kind of a a nightmare for. for I both think teachers it's one thing to practice what you've learned on your own at home. It is an entirely different thing to try to learn new material because right. you're learning from a video that teachers created, and I give them all the credit for putting these things together. But you can't raise your hand in the middle of that video and say, "I'm sorry, I don't understand that last part. Could you repeat it?" You just can't do that. The the thing you said about childcare, I mean, the the only way that would work is if the parents were continuing to work from home. So you'd almost have to have the governor pleading with employers to allow at least partial work from home to continue through the crisis until you can get kids back in the schools. Cause, cause otherwise right. it, it'll be dangerous. And so it, or if they're young enough, you know, you'd have to have, you know, childcare daycares, and then you'd have the same social distancing problems that you do at school. Yeah. It's what's nice is it sounds like they're making progress in the discussions, these work groups that, that the governor has put together, they're considering the challenges. They're trying to come up with the solutions and it, and it's nice to see finally some progress being made because there is so much interest in it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How dangerous is the coronavirus for people 80 and older? Uh, this is something that, that we all kind of know from, from what we've seen, that the older you are, the more dangerous it is. But our data guru, Rich Exner, did a piece today that kind of laid bare. This is very, very dangerous for people 80 and older. Yes, his headline says it exactly. Jarring numbers. So a fourth of people age 80 and older who have been known to have contracted coronavirus have died. And that starts, that percentage keeps dropping as you get younger. So folks in their 70s, about 15% died. In their 60s, 6% died. In their 50s, 2% died. So the younger you are, the better your chances. And in total, just over half of Ohio's coronavirus deaths, that's about 577 of the 1,135, were people at least 80 years old. Yeah, this has led, because of the, the vulnerabilities, it's led to discussions on having different rules for 
people in different classifications, which is anathema in America that you would treat people differently. Uh, and, and I think the consensus has grown that what really needs to happen is people 80 and older need to be convinced that they need to take far more precautions than somebody that's 20 or 30 and in varying degrees, the lower you get because it, it, it's, you know, it's so dangerous. But I've also found that people in that age group are damn stubborn. I have them, <laughs> my mother among them. It's like, I'm not going to get this. I've lived a long life. You guys are crazy. I'm not that worried. It's like, okay, but you are in the dangerous age group. You need to be careful. Yeah, 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 yeah. She does wear a mask. So it's that. not just their age, right? It could be where they're living. Like a lot of the people in nursing homes tend to be older and that's congregate living and it spreads much faster there. My grandma's 90 and she went to live with my aunt for the duration just so she could get out of the a small congregate setting. But yeah, it's but it's but it's how do you get that message across because for for that group it's it we you know we talk about Russian roulette where you have mm-hmm. you know 100 spots in the gun with one bullet, right? For that group, it's it's a much higher odds. They're going to get very sick and die. And Well, and-, and I talked to Dr. Amy Edwards at UH yesterday, and, you know, we're beginning to reopen the state. We're going to let more people go to work and go to regular retail stores, and more people probably will end up contracting the disease. And that's the way it's supposed to work, but it is up to people themselves if they have underlying conditions, if they are older, to to assess their own risk and take their own precautions because the government's not going to keep doing it for everyone. Well, it's a chilling story. You can find it on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do I need to wear a mask when I'm outside, but not with other people? It's the masks again. There's so much conversation about the masks, and there's been so much discussion about whether you're safe outside. The line that you should wear it whenever you leave the house kind of rings hollow if you're out in a big park and there's nobody near you. So we did some checking. And what did we find, Laura Johnson? You do not need to wear a mask outside when you're all alone. Yeah, the experts said that the doctor said they don't wear their mask when they're alone outside. However, it gets a little trickier because so many times you're not alone outside. So if you are in a crowded park, I went to a couple metro parks over the weekend and they were hopping with that beautiful weather. If you're going to be within six feet of a person, if you're on a path, a jogging path and you're walking and you're near people, you should be wearing that mask just to protect other people um, and so you should always carry it with you, carry it with you in your pocket or uh, and have some hand sanitizer in case you need to put it on or take it off just just so that you can carry it with you so you can put it on if you need to. Yeah, this question was born partly out. I was we, we took our Golden Retriever L on a walk in Lakeview Cemetery over the weekend and there were people there. It, it wasn't it wasn't empty, but nobody ever got within 100 feet of anybody else. But 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 there were people wearing masks and kind of giving the stink eye to people who weren't. And I thought, man, am I supposed to be wearing a mask here? And, and that's why we did some checking. But the fact was, we didn't. We weren't carrying them. And if somebody had gotten close to us, that I guess we would have been in danger. So I guess that is the moral of the story. Walking down the sidewalk, it's far more likely you're going to bump into somebody. And we talked about this among ourselves yesterday. There are a whole lot of people that aren't distancing. They're they're getting out, they're, they're fist bumping, they're, and it just, it throws me that, that the idea that you need to keep the distance has not really taken hold in large sectors of the public. 
Well, we've also talked about exercising outside, right? And it is incredibly hard. I'm not going to run with a mask. It's just, I can't. No way. Right. And and biking, I'm not biking with a mask. So it is important to keep your distance when you're doing those things. So I have found, and I run early in the morning, there's not a lot of traffic. I will run in the middle of the street, not quite the middle, but on the street so that people have the sidewalks, the dog walkers that I'm not like dodging them. And I'm just going to dodge a car if I see it coming. So it is up to people to give each other some space. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. How much money is the Ohio Turnpike losing because of the coronavirus? We know that far fewer people are driving. And now that this has been in effect for a couple of months, we can actually see the numbers So, Laura Johnston, how much is the Ohio Turnpike losing? It's losing a lot. Preliminary numbers show for April a decline of nearly $9 million in tolls. That's a 35% drop from 2019 in April. And most of that decline reflects fewer cars using the road. So that's 62% fewer passenger cars on the Turnpike in April than in April 2019. But commercial traffic is down. It's not quite as bad. It's 20% on the Turnpike and other highways. That's fascinating because you don't usually think of the Turnpike as a commuter road. It somewhat is, but not really. Uh, it just means people are not are not traveling at all. They're mostly staying at home, which we've seen from the cell phone tracking data that Ohio has largely done that. There was an interesting caveat that Bob Higgs found in reporting this story that while people are traveling less, they're traveling faster. <laughs> I, You know, that's funny because I feel exactly the opposite. The few times I've been on the highway, I check my speedometer and I'm going like 59 because like, you know, and you've seen the memes, like people are like, I think I've forgotten how to drive. Like it when you're not doing it every day, it kind of resets that button in you that you're like, wow, this is, I'm going really fast here. So I, I'm finding the opposite with myself. But with the turnpike, to me, I think of it as like a road trip road. Like I use it, we use it to go to the cottage or to go to Chicago and nobody, you can't go on a road trip right now. So that's to me, probably a big drop is weekend traffic. Yeah, but if you're on that road and there's no traffic on it and you know that the police don't really want to pull you over because they don't want to get the coronavirus, I guess people are hitting it with the lead feet. Um, I mean, one of the studies that they they were looking at showed, what was it up? Some people were going 28 miles over the speed limit. I mean, that's a... They're all doing their own cannonball run, I guess. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. They're, They're not driving, but those who are driving faster. It's this week in the CLE. Does smoking protect me from the coronavirus? Okay, I don't smoke, and this is kind of a silly question, but there have been some observations that people uh, who are getting the sickest in a few countries are not smokers, and there's a question about whether nicotine somehow protects you. So we had a reporter look at this. What did we find, Laura Johnston? This is a controversial new French study that said that low incidence of daily active tobacco smoking raises possibly that nicotine may actually inhibit symptoms of the coronavirus. And this is a real head scratcher because everything we've talked about and read about up till now says that you know smoking damages your lungs. If your lungs are damaged, it's going to be easier to get the coronavirus, which wreaks havoc on your lungs. So the nicotine study doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think there's going to probably be a lot of follow-up on this because people are going to be like, huh? I don't know. A lot of a lot of doubters on this one. Well, I mean, look, it's the it's the double edged sword, right? So maybe maybe nicotine provides some level of protection, 
But if you get it, the damage done to your lungs makes you much more vulnerable, right? I mean, Mary Kilpatrick did a story early on in our reporting on the coronavirus that talked about the the micro damage you get in your lungs and how that makes you so much more vulnerable to COVID, which is unique in the way it attacks the lining of the lungs. So, you know, the ultimate message here isn't you should start smoking. Uh, it was It was one country, though. I think it was France immediately after this started to get around kind of put limits on purchases of nicotine products, not cigarettes, but the patches and things because they were worried there'd be a run on that by people trying to use nicotine to protect themselves. Oh, jeez. I feel like this is one that comes out that just, it's, it magnifies that confusion over all of the different advice we've been given. Like, don't wear a mask. Oh, you need to wear a mask. Like, smoking is bad for you. Oh, wait, smoking could be good for you. It's just a a massive confusion that can make your head spin. Yeah, there have been some very popular pieces online and and Dan Malter plagued something by Dave Eggers in the New York Times where where people do that. They go back and forth. Here's here's the advice, except here's the advice. And Don't leave the house except when you need to leave the house. Except leave the house. And you know, it's just it's been, you know, you need to stay at home except when you don't stay. I mean, it's just it's it's been a, a kind of a confusing mess. Yeah, with some serious implications. The mask advice in the beginning was Looney Tunes mm-hmm. and it was surprising how long it took for people to come around and say, wait a minute, yes, masks make sense. You should wear one. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. Is Lake Erie still breaking records for water levels? We're taking a brief walk away from the coronavirus here to talk about a subject near and dear to Laura Johnson's heart. (laughs) We knew last year Lake Erie set records month after month after month. Laura, is it still doing it? Yes, it broke its April record. Uh, we were up about nine inches from last last April. And this is the last standing 1986 record that we just broke. So we have broken a year of records at this point of monthly averages. And we hit the all-time record high last June. Um, the good news is the Army Corps of Engineers does not believe we're going to be breaking our 2019 records. They think we're going to start, if it doesn't rain exponentially, we're going to start dropping from those highs, which is really great news for a lot of these communities and property owners that have just been battered by the waves and erosion uh, over the last year. So so is that right? We've had 12 straight months of setting records? Uh, yeah, every that's month? my understanding. Yeah. I mean, I, I could be wrong. We could have, we could have missed one month. Um, I'll go back and check today. But yeah, this was a 1986 record and we started breaking the 1986 records last May. And we did that story last year about how long it would take, even if you doubled the flow of Niagara Falls. I mean, it's not it's like going months. away yeah. anytime soon. No, so. we're still, even if we're not re- breaking records in the next couple of months, we're still talking more than two feet over average, which means another summer of high water and low, you know, no beaches right now. I mean, it's just the water's just covered up all of the sand. But it was good for fishing, right? Oh, fishing has been great. And that is one thing you are allowed to do. During the uh, Stay Safe Ohio order, actually fishing charters are going to reopen on Monday, which is uh, you just got to stay six feet from other people on the boat, I guess. But how do you do that? uh, It's a really good question. I mean, these charter boats are not that big. Uh, Maybe everybody who lives in a house together should be going fishing. But yeah, they they reopen. um, I guess it's Tuesday, the 12th. But it's going to be interesting this summer to see 
if the lake can be a respite, if they have closed pools, if we can keep social distancing on the lake, because they, I think everybody wants that escape possibility. Well, in kayaks and paddle boards, you're obviously going to be keeping six yes. feet of distance. It's yes. just how many can you fit in that river before it becomes crazy? Uh, we'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE. Can we figure out how prevalent the coronavirus is in Ohio by analyzing poop? It's a story out of Wales this morning that scientists there are assessing the spread of the coronavirus by analyzing sewage. And this is like a smack yourself in the forehead kind of moment. Why didn't we think about this in Ohio, where testing has been extremely limited and everybody's wanted to know how far this is spread and where geographically the virus is? Why weren't we checking the sewage? It's been proven that the coronavirus travels very easily in fecal matter. Um, and it's just we're we're working on this. We're asking the sewer district today if there's any studies like that. But Laura Johnson, this is one of those like, why didn't the public health experts think of this before now? You know, it makes a lot of sense. We've been so focused on, you know, like dealing with the population and keeping people home and testing people who have currently have coronavirus that I guess nobody thought about checking who the other side. I don't know. I mean, it, it does seem I, I know people were worried about it in the water supply, but that would be treated water, not wastewater. So this is a, a very interesting possibility. And I can see the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District getting right on it. They're usually pretty innovative and they're uh, their Twitter, their social media presence is very cheeky. So I, I feel like they'll have a, a good time with this one. Well, and look, the sewage treatment plants are geographically specific. So, you know, once you test it and you get your baseline, you get to see, is it going up? Is it going down? It's just, it's like, duh, we should have been doing this all along. And why didn't we think of it? So we're, we're going to, we'll get a story together on why we're not doing this or whether we should be doing this or whether we might start doing Too this. Too bad but there's it's... no briefing today to ask about poop. Yeah, well, we, there's always the, <laughs> the, the phone. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. All right, well, not bad for an on-the-fly podcast, Laura Johnson, and hopefully Friday the technical aspects will work out and we'll be able to have our first guest on this weekday podcast. A secret special guest. Yeah, although it, it'll be a good conversation. The topic's a good one. Okay, well, thanks, Laura, and thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow with another round of coronavirus news. 